You know, it's hard for us to imagine how troubled the disciples uh, must have been when all that happened happened this past week prior to Easter morning. I mean, the week started out with triumphal, the triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And things looked grand. Palms were being waved. People were praising. And um, the disciples had to wonder, you know, maybe it's happening. Maybe it's really happening. Maybe, maybe Jesus is really going to do the Messiah thing. The Messiah thing was known that a person would come and bring deliverance to Israel. And when that kind of figure showed up, uh, the figure showed up to defeat Israel's enemies. And in this particular case, Rome might be pushed back. It was an exciting idea to them. Then their hopes sort of get flipped at the Last Supper midweek and when Jesus scandalously strips down uh, to look like the lowest on society's totem pole. He takes his garments, just wraps it around his waist. He looks like a Roman slave. And he starts washing their feet. This is a very embarrassing thing because it's wrong for anyone to do something that mundane, that profane when you're a person of any stature. And yet Jesus does it. He acts like the anti-Messiah at this point. So much so that Peter looks at him and says, no, no, you, you, no, never, Lord, you won't, you won't wash my feet. But as Jesus does so often, he just sort of ignores cultural rules and does something that shocks them. And then during that meal, we, we see the Judas betrayal unfold. Not everybody knows what's going on, but John is sort of speaking behind the scenes with Jesus, sidebarring with Jesus, and Jesus says, the one I dip with my bread, that very one, and John watches. The whole deal, even though they didn't know exactly what was going on, it had to have a huge chunk of funk on it, because it's at that moment the text says, Satan entered Judas <laughs> while, they were, while he was in the room. I mean, that had to feel weird. What is going on? And then they move to Gethsemane, and you have that whole Gethsemane tension. And then all of a sudden, the mob comes with clubs, with swords in the middle of the night. And here comes Judas, comes up to Jesus, and betrays him with the mark of friendship, a kiss. And then the disciples scatter. They're freaking out. There's one little odd text in one of the Gospels in Matthew. It says in first chapter 14 that this young man who was in Gethsemane, this is right when they're in Gethsemane, and all of a sudden the mob comes, and this young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, garment he was following Jesus, but when they seized him, tried to seize him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's kind of an odd verse. But the point... Matthew's trying to leave with us is that people were in a hurry to distance themselves from Jesus. Then they have this mock trial in the middle of the night, a couple of them. We see Peter, who has up to this point claimed he would die fighting 
for Jesus. We find Peter denying him. And then they watch in horror as the crowd cries, Crucify him! Crucify him! I mean, these were the very ones that were waving palms and praising him just a few days before. And then Jesus is crucified. The whole thing fell apart. The whole gig broke down. Their hopes are dashed. Jesus can't be the Messiah. He's not doing anything with Rome. Rome just beat him. Jesus was dead. And they threw him in a tomb. It was a mess. And then this, Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, of James rather, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. It was very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, just after sunrise, and they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. It was an angel. Sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be afraid, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You know, this resurrection moment is Christianity being born. See, Christianity isn't just this religion of ethics and rules and beliefs. It has those kinds of things in it. But Christianity is all about this moment. It's all about the resurrected Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul on this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. If there, ha if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, everything we're saying, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that God raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worth and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, if there is no resurrection, if this isn't what happened, then we are to be pitied more than all people. The resurrection was huge in the mind of the Christians. When the New Testament talks about how to present the gospel to the world, it's framed out like this. Watch it. For what I received, he's saying to preach, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the whole kit and caboodle. What happened to Jesus? 
The thing that makes Christianity Christianity is the resurrected Christ. Jesus being alive after dying is what gave birth to Christianity. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples physically. And he speaks directly to them and they see him and they they touch him. Today, his resurrection still allows them to be present in the lives of people. But his presence comes to us in in a new mode. People experience the resurrected Jesus Christ in 2014, not because they go and find an empty tomb or because they have a vision of Jesus, but Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes to them because he makes himself known to people vis-a-vis the Holy Spirit. He causes people to experience his powerful presence in a personal and spiritual way. Just, Just ask people who are followers of Jesus. Ask people around here. Ask them Uh, about what happened to them anywhere on the planet. The data will suggest, not prove, because you can't prove these things, but the data will suggest the Christian movement is not just a commitment of people to doctrine or ethics or belief or certain practices, but what the Christian movement is is an experience with the personal, transcendent, and transformational power of the risen Jesus Christ within his community called the church because he's alive. <laughs> My favorite Jesus meets people story um, is one about my agnostic doctor friend. I've told it many times in this context because I only have a few stories. And to make a long story short, I was talking to him. He said he didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe that he was alive. And I, and I basically said, you know, look, at you. he's got to be trying to contact you. He's alive. He's got to be trying to contact you. I mean, is there any place in your life where you sense any kind of transcendent peace or something you can't quite explain. And he noodled a while, and then he said, you know, sometimes when I go out hiking or out in nature, I bump into a place where it feels like there's something more than what's there. But that's just nature. I said, what if it's not? I said, what if it's Jesus? Knocking. He kind of giggled, you know, looked at me like I was an idiot. I said, okay, so make a deal. If you ever even remember this conversation, just whenever you feel that next time, sense that next time, just ask it, are you Jesus? <laughs> he laughed again. A few weeks later, he was out on the West Coast. He was marching, well, you know, hiking with a few of his doctor friends up in the middle of the West, you know, on the mountains up in the, uh, uh, the Western Pacific, Northwestern Pacific. And uh, he came across this beautiful valley, he said, and he said, he looked out and it just hit him. That transcendent kind of piece just hit him. He says, and I remembered our conversation. And even though I was with other people, I said under my breath as it hit me, I said, are you Jesus? And he said, he answered me. What do I do now? <laughs> He's alive. <laughs> See, we don't have to fight people. We don't have to try to convince people to believe or do anything. We just have to simply invite people to dare to seek him. Because the gig is rigged. If you seek him, you will find him. For whoever seeks, finds. The whole of Christianity can only be understood in the light of the resurrection. This is why Easter is the high water mark in the Christian calendar for us. I mean, this is why we go to church on Sundays, not Saturdays. The whole Jewish culture, which Christianity emerges 
all went to their gatherings on Saturdays. Why did they shift it to Sundays? Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. It was the resurrection that helped the first Christians sort out the questions they had about Jesus. And they had a boatload of questions about Jesus. I mean, in a very real way, Jesus was confusing to them. I mean, yeah, he, he did miracles. He walked on the water. He calmed storms. There was voices that came out of heaven about him, some pretty wild stuff. But he also did some stuff no one had ever done. He messed with the Torah. I mean, the Torah was sacred. That's God's word. It's the writings of Scripture. And Jesus said, you know how it was said? Yeah, we know. That's, we grew up on that. Well, I'm saying it's different. Oh, really? What gives you the right to say that? He not only messed with the Torah, he messed with Sabbath. Sabbath was like a huge deal to them. And Jesus comes and says, you weren't made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for you. And he recalibrates the whole Sabbath idea. How could he do that? And then he got the whole Messiah thing wrong. I mean, he ends up suffering. Messiahs were supposed to make other people suffer. That's what Messiahs do, but not Jesus. And then, horror of horrors, he died on a tree. Now, this may not mean anything to us in the 21st century, but this was a huge problem in that ancient world. Because in the ancient civilization, how a person died was very telling. In fact, disproportionately so, thanks to the likes of Aristotle, who basically said, you can never tell if a person is virtuous by how they live. You can only tell if a person is virtuous by how they die. If you died well, you were a good person. If you died poorly, you probably were a fake. This was a day of crucifixions. You remember the Romans were big on crucifying people. And the Jews had a definite take on crucifixion. I mean, if you talk to them, they had a very defined view of who it was that would be put on a cross. In fact, they took it from the Torah itself in Deuteronomy 21. It says, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. Anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. Curse. Only people under the curse of God were crucified. That was their take. There was no way around it. And based on his death, Jesus could not have been from God, could not have been of God. Slam dunk. Everyone knew it. The disciples' only choice at this point was to distance themselves from Jesus. Only one of them, John, dared to stand by him at the cross. They all scattered. They figured they must have been wrong about Jesus. He was not the Holy One of God. He was the cursed of God. But then Sunday came and Jesus came out of death. And they knew that God was the only one that could do that. God was the only one that could bring someone out of death. And so this messed with them. I mean, it created a, a deep cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance means that you believe one thing, and yet you're experiencing something else that seems completely contrary to it. 
I mean, it's like if you, you believe parents are to be loving, but somehow your experience is a parent that's abusing you. It creates this, you don't know quite what to do with it. It messes with you because what you believe doesn't match with what you're seeing or what you're experiencing. They started going, what's going on? Is he cursed? I mean, but he's alive. What were they supposed to believe about Jesus? And we see this narrative playing out, this idea playing out in Luke 24. It says, this is after the resurrection. It says, now that same day, two of them were going on a village to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I wonder how often he does that to us. He walks right with us but he doesn't let us see him. And so Jesus asked them, what are you guys talking about? You're walking along here as though he didn't know. And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Don't you know what's been going on these last few days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the, our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. But we're confused. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our own women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. And they came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. See, they're saying, we don't know what's going on here. And then Jesus said to them, you guys are all jacked up for nothing. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. And did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is very important. This is where the New Testament's born. It starts by rethinking and seeing where Christ was hidden in the Old Testament. And, and they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus acted like he was going to go farther. <laughs> and they urged him strongly, no, 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 stay with us. It's almost evening. The day is over. So he went in with them. And when he was sitting at the table with them, he took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. This is Eucharistic language. And he began to give it to them and pow, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he, poof, disappeared out of their sight. How cool is that? This is like, we get to believe this stuff. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was explaining, talking with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Something was going on. We knew something more than just his presence was going on. He was transforming us. And they got up and ran at once to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and, and those with them assembled together. And they said, it's true, the Lord is risen. He's appeared to Simon and the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread, which is why. Why the church always said, when we come to the table and when that bread is broken and we participate in the body and the blood, we see Jesus in a way we haven't seen him. We recognize him in places that we did not recognize him before. That's why the table was so critical to them all through history. 
What Jesus does, and we don't have time to explicate how, but what he does is he shows them through the scripture that everything that happened to him was not just for him, that it was for them. In fact, for all humanity. So the example we see it in Galatians 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, how? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So what Jesus began to tell them is say, they saw it. Jesus wasn't cursed. God hadn't cursed God, but Jesus became a curse for us. <laughs> Jesus showed them that his death was really everyone else's death. That the cross was the plan that God put in play in order to take away the sin of the world. That God had not come with force and power to take away our sin. That's what they would have expected from a Messiah. But that he came in humility and in sacrifice and he died in our stead, in our place. Paul said he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. His death was our death. Not only that, but Jesus showed him that his resurrection, coming out of death, the death of all humankind. That his resurrection coming out of death was the way that you and I could come out of death, out of the grave, and experience life now. We see him after the resurrection in John 20 on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together. The doors are locked because they're freaking out. Jesus came and stood among them. Just came through the doors. How cool is that? And after he said this, he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. He was the one killed and rose. And the disciples were just overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is the first Easter. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As your fa the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive what? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> this is hugely significant. Because what he basically is using is Genesis language. Do you remember Genesis? In the beginning, Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Does that just ever describe you? Formless, empty, dark over your life. But he says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Such an interesting idea, hovering. It actually is a literal word. Or the, the actual Hebrew word is to brood. It's, you know, like a, like, a, like a hen broods over the eggs. You know, so it just broods. And, and if you look into the hen's eyes, you know what you see? Baby chicks. The, the, the hen is brooding in expectation of something. The Holy Spirit is brooding over the earth. What? In expectation of creation. An expectation of separating the chaos. An expectation of once things are separated to bring life where chaos once was. That's what you see when you look inside the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus raises from the dead and he looks at them, he breathes on them. He says, receive. The brooding spirit that's going to bring creation into your life. What kind of creation? The new creation. 
Now, through the resurrection of Christ, the Spirit is released into the world. Why? To make all things new. And when you listen to the church fathers, the early church fathers, they use the term recapitulation. What they meant by that is that Jesus comes to recapitulate creation. In other words, redo it. Why? It got messed up. I think about the best I can do is mess up. About the best we can pull off is mess ups. But somehow the hope of resurrection is that no matter how messy we've made things or dark or horrible things have become, when we come into his presence, the spirit begins to brood over us and things can be recapitulated. It can be redone. We can get re- we. I don't know, when I used to play with our kids when we were little, we used to play video games. And some, sometimes, as they started getting older, they got better than me. If they got too far ahead, there's a little button. It was the magic button. It was, we're going to redo it, and you're not going to beat me so fast, button. Redo! <laughs> Somehow we have a button like that in our faith. When things get out of control, and we're, we get to recapitulate. We get to, we get to re- reboot. It's out of this knowledge that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, this person is a what? The new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. <laughs> All because of this morning. What happened? See, here's what's critical to us. When the disciples wrote of Jesus' resurrection, they weren't being historical. That's what the, that wasn't their point. Nor were they trying to be biographical, even though historical and biographical information is in the, in the gospel. But, but, but they, they just knew he was alive. And they knew that he had been elevated to the right hand of God. And they knew that he was the Lord. And they believed that he was still involved with them. Day in, day out through his life-giving spirit. And as such that he was powerfully present with them. That's what the church is. is the people who knows that he is risen. That he's actually sitting at the right hand of God. That he's actively involved with us by his spirit. And that somehow we live our lives with him being powerfully present in our midst. The risen Christ. This is not about doctrine. This is not about ideas. This is not about ethics. It has that in it. But it's not about that. We see Paul's prayer. I mean, basically the idea is that they knew that the power that was released at the moment of resurrection was a power that continued to be present in Christ. In other words, it wasn't just, the resurrection wasn't like a flashball that went flash and it was over. It was more like, it was like a power plant that came online. And it's still online. Which means you can plug into it. You didn't miss it because you weren't there. He's still alive. And the power that released him out of the grave is the power that's still present to release us out of our graves. And so Paul prays earnestly in Ephesians 1. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? In order that you may know three things. One, the hope to which he's called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, that you'll get it. This incomparably great power that's released towards you as a believer. There's some power out here. There's some power available. There's something available to you that if you stick your finger in it, you're going to feel it. What is that power? It's the power like his working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What is he saying? The power of the resurrection is still on. Game on. 
They knew that this power continued to enable them to bring transformation into the world. A transformation that would triumph over evil. A transformation that would, would, would triumph over the things that would have, over, would have normally overcome them and triumphed over them. They believed that the resurrection afforded them the opportunity to become participants in a new creation, a new day. They knew the essence of Christianity was rooted in resurrection. Paul cries out at one point, Oh, that I might know Christ in the power of his resurrection. That's what it was about. Christians are to be the Easter people. This is what makes us different. This is why we don't have to define ourselves by our looks or by the stuff we have or, or by anything that's going on in our life. This is life for us. It's a life that's not based on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. There is no situation too far gone, too difficult for him to make new. The new creation that kicks into gear it kicks into gear every single time we encounter the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it has an effect on every situation. Why? Because the Spirit is brooding over us. The, in the face of loss, in the face of, of bondage, in the face of addiction, in the face of tragedy, in the face of disappointment, in the face of trouble, if we will dare to seek the resurrected one, if we will dare to, God will start to work anew. Chaos will start to be sorted. Genesis 1 will begin. It may not be quick. It may not be completely dealt with until the end of time. But the new will start and what was will begin to lose its formative power. You do not have to be defined by evil. The gates of hell do not get to prevail over you. Evil may ravage from time to time, but it doesn't get to win because a new creation is at work to those who follow the resurrected one. The grave cannot hold us. Amen. <laughs> you want to know what Jesus is doing right now? Right now, Hebrews tells us. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely anyone who comes to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because we're linked to the Christ story. Because of his now presence in his church, we are a people with a cause. And our lives can matter. There's a beautiful resurrection verse tucked into the Song of Solomon. It says this, my beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my beautiful one. Let's get out of here. For behold, winter can't keep ruling. It's past. The rain, over and done. Flowers are appearing in the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree will ripen with her green figs. The vines are in blossom. They will give forth their fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. This is the resurrection song. Resurrection gives life. For us, the little things of life matter because resurrection is on. Working out stuff in our marriage, raising kids matters, spending time with an elderly parent can matter. Pressing through the pain and the guilt of failure, it's okay, it matters. Pooling money together to buy fresh water for those in developing countries, it matters. 
doing what we say matters, watching each other's back through all the changes, the vicissitudes of life, it matters. These are all actions of a new creation and they bring flowers on the earth. We bring flowers on the earth. <laughs> Winter is past. These are actions that are something bigger than us and they give us a taste of the new creation, the full new creation that's coming when there is a new heaven and a new earth. Sometimes we go to the mall and one of the, one of the Japanese restaurants there, they have these pre-taste on a stick. You know, where they give you a little, you're hungry and you go by and say, hey, you want to try? It's a sampler. And so you take it and you eat it. And a lot of times you go, ooh, I want more of that. See, that's what we're to do. Kingdom on a stick. <laughs> we walk into the job and we work harder, not because we're trying to overreach everyone or because we're trying to put other people down or get ahead of people, but because we just value the fact that our lives are hidden with Christ and God and we're called to serve and to love and to give. And so when we do it, they taste and they go, whoa, where'd you get that? From the resurrected one. Can I get a whole meal of that? Yeah, one day the whole meal will come. See? Jesus promised to be unusually present to us in a number of ways. Like in prayer. All you have to do is open your heart in prayer and start seeking him and you will find it. It may not be immediately. It may take you a while. But if you press into prayer, one of my favorite prayers is, Lord, it's the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I'll get specific. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of loving God, have mercy on me, the ingrate. I'm so aware of what I don't have, and I'm not aware of all the good things you've done. So Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, the ingrate. And I'll just say that prayer, and, and it's amazing to me. You press into just little patterns of prayer, even if they're prayers that are written by another. And at some point, the resurrected Christ shows because he said he'd be present in places like prayer. He said he'd be present with, when we dared to spend time with the least of these, the sick, the hurting. He said he'd be present when we gathered in the name, in his name, in community. And he said he'd be present in Eucharist. What our goal is as Christians is not to be do-gooders, not to try to express all of our gifts. I mean, thank God we have a purpose, we have a direction, we have a life, but it's not just to experience that. Our real joy is actually to experience the person of Jesus Christ because he is risen. He is risen. Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.